You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 66. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today we are back at it with the Hag Akuri, the Book of the Samurai by Yamamoto Tsunetomo. We're going to go into chapter 7 today, Narutomi Hyogo said. Again, another chapter of anecdotes, collected wisdom from the past by Tsunetomo, gathering together all of these voices from the history of this class of knights, these warriors, these samurai. And to begin with today, we have a very pregnant sentence by Narutomi Hyogo, who said, what is called winning is defeating one's allies. Defeating one's allies is defeating oneself. And defeating one's self is vigorously overcoming one's own body. It is as though a man were in the midst of 10,000 allies, but not a one were following him. If one hasn't previously mastered his mind and body, he will not defeat the enemy. Pretty simple. Straightforward. I think commonsensical, actually. If nothing else, experience proves the truth of his words. You don't have to be a warrior. You don't ever have to have actually gotten into a fight to understand what he's saying is true. In fact, anyone who doesn't immediately reflect on this or doesn't think that you don't have that experience, just think back to the last time that you were violently ill and how sick you became and how you had very little control over your bowels or your stomach and how you were defeated by your own body, but did you lay in bed and allow yourself to be sick? Did you succumb, did you surrender to the virus, to the bug, to whatever it was that made you ill in the first place? Or did you put into your body what was necessary to help you recover from the illness? What did you need to do? to get the virus out of your system as quickly as possible? What did you need to do to bounce back as quickly as possible? Did you do anything to try and restore your strength, increase your stamina and endurance, replace your fluids? Did you drink electrolytes? Did you think of amino acids? Did you drink hot chicken broth or beef broth? Did you take vitamins and supplements? Did you sleep more? Or did you just lay there and accept a defeat? Now, that's not to say that some people don't treat an illness that way, especially when it is an illness that is aggressive and not only overtakes your body, but attacks you emotionally and in, in your intellect as well. That's when you need others to help fight with you and ultimately fight for you. And yet, like he says, if one wants to defeat the enemy, then one, first of all, has to defeat himself. You have to overcome your own body. So what is called winning is defeating one's allies. Not enemies, allies. Defeating one's allies is defeating oneself. And defeating oneself is vigorously overcoming one's own body. Defeating the enemy might be easy, depending on the opponent. 
maybe I'm not in shape, maybe I'm not prepared, but you know what? I'm faster and stronger and quicker and wiser than that person is. But to defeat your allies, one first has to defeat oneself. Why should I follow you? Why should I listen to you? Why should I accept what you're saying? Why should I offer to die for you? If you're not somebody that I can look at and say, this person is worth dying for. This person is worth fighting for. This person is worth calling friend. Remember in Bushido, in that, Inazanatobi notes that if you were not willing to, in a different time, call your enemy friend, then maybe you need to take a step back and check yourself and wonder, am I punching down right now? Is this person that I deem my enemy unworthy of the name? Would I be proud to call this person my friend in a different life? Maybe because of their fighting prowess, maybe because of their bravery and courage, maybe because of how they carry themselves. But if we hope to overcome our allies at home, in our communities, in the boardroom, at the gym, we need to defeat ourselves. If my ego blinds me to the reality of me, who I actually am in point of fact, and I allow that projection of myself to overtake me so that all I can see is this imaginary person that I've created for myself in my own mind, and then I spend all of my time, all of my energy, putting that person out into the world, everyone being aware of what I'm trying to do, the person I'm trying to project out onto the world. But they're aware that I'm being two-faced, that I'm false, that I'm not being authentic. And then the only person that doesn't recognize that is me. So then I wonder, well, why don't I have friends that I can depend on? Why is it when I need help, I can't count on anybody to show up for me? Why isn't anybody ever complimentary about me? Or maybe worse yet, when I'm not around, they mock me and make fun of me and joke about me. Is it them? Is that the problem? Do I need to choose better friends? Sure, possibly. But if you don't know yourself, if you haven't defeated yourself, if you haven't disciplined your own body, then you don't have a line. You don't have a standard. And if you have no standard, then how do you measure your relationships? If you are not willing to hold the line against yourself, your own shortcomings and failures, then how are you to know when someone is using you or exploiting you? How do you know when other people are projecting a false sense of self from them onto you? Well, you don't. And so what you end up with is a circle of friends, relationships, people around you, allies, who aren't really your allies, people you can't depend on, people who won't show up for you. So how do I hope to defeat an enemy when I have no allies? And how do I hope to have allies if I haven't already defeated my own mind and body, mastered my own mind and body? So, Narutomi Hyogo continues. <clears throat> or, I'm sorry, Tsunetomo continues here. During the Shimbara Rebellion, his armor being still at the encampment, Shugyo, Eshizen, Nokami, Tenenao, participated in the fight, dressed only in hakama and haori. It is said that he died in battle, in his attire. 
At the time of the attack on the castle at Shimbara, Tazaki Geki was wearing very resplendent armor. Lord Katsushige was not pleased by this. And after that, every time he saw something showy, he would say, that's just like Geki's armor. In the light of this story, military armor and equipment that are showy can be seen as being weak and having no strength. By them, one can see through the wearer's heart. Hmm, <laughs> that's interesting. Also, I think, true. Wearing too much or too little betrays one's heart. One man goes into battle in jeans and a t-shirt, essentially, and dies in battle because he has no armor. And he doesn't think enough beforehand to say to himself, I best wear armor, I'm going into battle. How does one forget armor when going into battle? And yet, how often do we show up for a conflict, for a fight, not armored? How often do we leave ourselves exposed and vulnerable to ourselves, to our habits and cravings, to our addictions, to those things that enslave us and weaken us? For example, going back to the example of addiction, since I know it so well, every day I have to focus and pay attention to and work my, pro my program of sobriety. Every day. I don't get a choice. I don't get days off. Taking a day off from my sobriety is like going into battle with no armor. I'll be fine. I fought the fight before. I know this enemy. I'm very, very, very familiar with this enemy. I have all the tools around me that I need to defeat this enemy. So therefore, I don't have to go out and hunt for the enemy. I don't have to reinforce and prepare for a counterattack by the enemy or a surge by the enemy. Addiction is, in a sense, siege warfare. You're surrounded all the time by this demonic power that wants to control you and manipulate you and own you and enslave you. And at a certain point, God willing, you open the gates and you charge. You charge into the face of the enemy like Gideon's army, 300 against 100,000. And you trust, God willing, that you will defeat the enemy regardless of your numbers. But the point being, at a certain point when you're being laid siege to, you either surrender or you counterattack. Those are your two choices. And if you choose sobriety, that's what you're doing. You're choosing to counterattack the enemy. And the enemy in this case is alcohol and drugs. It's the demonic powers behind those substances for an addict. But ultimately, of course, you're choosing to attack yourself. You're saying to yourself, enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of sitting here waiting for inevitability, crazy, jail, or death. I'm done. I'm done waiting. I'm going to charge. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get sober. I'm going to go to meetings. I'm going to do whatever it takes to defeat this enemy that has for so long enslaved me and the people that I know. And at first, it seems as if all is lost. Because you have no tools, you have no weapons, you have no armor. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to fight this enemy. You've been a slave to this enemy. You want to give up as quickly as you begin. You want to surrender. Because the promise is there. If you surrender, I'm a benevolent dictator. I will give you what you need. I'll soothe your conscience. I will calm your troubled soul. I will give you the relief that you need from this stress and this anxiety. Just come over to my side. Lay down your arms. Take off that silly armor. It doesn't fit you right anyways. 
Come back. Come back to slavery. Come back and serve your master. I'm good. I'm kind. I won't hurt you. I promise. And at first, it sounds like a pretty good deal. But you know better because you've lived in that house. You've been the house slave. You've given up and allowed yourself to be overcome time and time and time again by alcohol and drugs. So you fight. You fight because you made that choice and you can't go back now. You fight because to go back and retreat would be living death. And every day you get stronger because you learn how to fight. You learn what weapons work best against your addiction. You learn how to armor yourself and protect yourself. You learn who are not your allies, but your enemies. And you get stronger. You get quicker. You get better. Until eventually you're not afraid of it anymore. Now you can be present tense. Now your mind is strong and sober. Now you know who your master is. And it's not alcohol and drugs. Not anymore. But the enemy's always out there. The addiction is always right there, just waiting, inside your own camp, inside your home. It's you. You are your own worst enemy when you are an addict. It's like having a spy inside the enemy's camp. You're like a Manchurian candidate when it comes to addiction, especially in recovery. And anything can set you off. So you have to be vigilant every day, rigorously honest with yourself. Doing, doing fearless moral inventories all the time. And again, at first, it hurts. It is painful to do a moral inventory and admit uh, all the wrongs that you've done against people. But every time you do it, it gets a little easier. You get a little bit stronger, a little bit more confident. Until finally, you just do it. It's just your life. It's just what you do. It's like, I said in the last episode, it's like running that stone against the sword, always keeping your blade sharp, always making sure your armor is in tip-top shape. So the idea then that I would go out to battle my addictions without the armor and the weapons necessary to defeat my addictions is absurd. And yet, when things are going well for me, that's when I'm most tempted to relax to not keep my eye on the prize, to not be on my guard. And that's when you start to shiver and shake. That's when you start to fudge the line a little bit. You start entertaining the idea that even though you're not going to drink or use drugs, you can be around it. And for some, they can. For myself, it doesn't really bother me to be around alcohol or drugs. I hate them. I despise them. And so when I'm around people drinking, I don't hate the people. I don't hate that they're drinking. I hate the substance because I hate what it did to me. I hate what I allowed it to do to me. When I'm around with people who take painkillers, I don't hate them for taking painkillers. I don't hate that they take them for whatever reason. But I hate the opiate because I know that's the serpent in the garden. I know what it wants me to do. It's a tempter. I know. So I never, never, ever want to engage with addiction without my armor on, without the weapons that I need to defeat it. And yet, this man goes to battle without his armor. And he dies as a consequence. Because that's what happens when you go into battle without armor, no matter what the battle is. On the other hand, Lord Geki, 
he shows up dressed like a Power Ranger or a Transformer. All bright colors, plumes, sashes, ribbons, flags, different colors, different designs. It's garish. It's outlandish. It's not the kind of armor that you wear into battle. It's more like dress armor when you want to show off around the palace or something, or you want to go walking through the streets and let all your people know, look at me, I'm awesome. But it's not armor fit for battle. It reminds me, actually, when I was reading that, it reminds me when new students show up for class with their brand new rash guard and spats or their brand new gloves and shin guards and how shiny they are. And they're shiny too. Because when you're there and you've been there for a while, your equipment's kind of beat up, your rash guards are pilly and used because you've worn them and washed them a hundred times. And you don't, you don't treat sparring, for example, like a big thing. It's just what you do. It's like I've said before about Saturday mornings. It's just three hours of sparring. I call it the test. It's my quiz. It's the end of the week review. How you doing? How's your striking? How's your defense? How's that fly trap choke coming? But you don't show up for the gym with brand new clothes, brand new gloves, brand new shin guards, brand new mouth guard, no cuts, no bruises, talking about how much of a fighter you are or how you're just here to, you know, to train for your first MMA match. That's fine. That's great. However, judging by your armor, you've not actually done this very often. (laughs) That's fine. That's cool. That's what we're here for. But just be aware of the fact that we reserve the right, us jaded, grimy, grungy, stinky, cut up, bruised up, broken old timers, we reserve the right to point out your shiny new equipment. And there's a little bit of jealousy there too, maybe. We all would we all would wish to be sponsored so that we could always have new equipment. And just call up our sponsor and say, hey, it's been two weeks. I think I need a new pair of gloves. This one's kind of scuffed up. But on the other hand, when you have shin guards that are a little scuffed up and taped up and your gloves are chewed up and streaked with colors from other people's gloves and a little bit of blood... And you got bruises and cuts, you got a limp, you got your wrist taped up. I don't know. There's something to that. It's like street cred, right? You put in the work, but you know, this is what works for me. These gloves work for me. These shin guards work for me. This suit of armor works for me. I don't need anything showy. I I don't need to prove to anybody that I'm going to fight. Why? Because I do it all the time. It's just what I do. And through that, you see the wearer's heart. Kindness? Absolutely. Humility? I hope so. Selflessness? Absolutely. And yet, confidence, strength, courage. And I think, too, a certain amount of surety or certainty, assuredness, that comes with, I've been here before. I've experienced this. I know what to expect. I know what's going to happen, generally speaking. I've got a plan, so let's see, let's see how it goes. I know what I need to do to be successful. I'm going to do it. I'm going to execute. When I encounter resistance, I'm going to overcome it because that's what I do. 
I've been here before. So whether it's fighting, sparring, whether it's addiction and recovery, whatever it might be, that's how you treat it at a certain point. It's just what I do. To those who don't do it, it may seem showy, arrogant. It might seem like you're beaten down, like you're weathered and grumpy. But that's not the case at all. It's just the way you are at a certain point. You're seasoned. You're salty. (laughs) You've been there before, and you know you're going to be here again. Because at a certain point, you make up your mind. Or maybe your mind's made up for you. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But at a certain point, you know, you know, I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to give up. Might take a break. Might rest. Might reflect. But I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to stop focusing on my recovery. Never going to make my sobriety second, third, fourth best. I'm never going to stop training. I'm never going to stop fighting. It's not a choice. It's not a hobby. It's not that I don't want to quit. It's that I can't. And once I think you get to that line where retreat isn't an option, it's like in marriage. At a certain point in a marriage, there's no retreat. There's no surrender. There's no admitting defeat because you're committed to holding that line. But both of you have to be committed to that line because you're fighting together. One holds the shield, the other holds the spear. If one quits, both are defeated. So both must function as a whole in order for the marriage to succeed. And if that's not the case, then you need to find a different partner. You need to find a different spear bearer. You need to find someone else to hold the shield. Does it hurt? Absolutely. Is it going to cause you to doubt yourself? Absolutely. Will it be better at a certain point? 100%. If you commit yourself to making it better, to learning from that, growing from that, figuring out what did I do wrong? What did I do right? What can I build off of? What must I never allow to happen again? That's the way it is with addiction. That's the way it is with relationships. That's the way it is with business. Your armor, your equipment, whatever your vocation, whatever walk of life should not be there for show. That's weak. And that shows that you don't have any strength. It also shows you have no experience. It also shows that you're probably not a frontline kind of person. You sit in the rear and bark out orders and expect other people to do it for you. That's something I've always found interesting about military history is there was a time when the general was always at the front. And then there was a time when the general was never at the front. He was always in the back. And I think, in my opinion, because I've never been to war that way, in my opinion, though, objectively, I think that changes the morale. I think that changes the perspective of the troops, of the infantry on the front line. To see Alexander leading the charge up the ladders, scaling the ladders to breach the walls, I think that inspires people to see your general your leader at the front versus him back at the tent, bent over his maps laid out on this table, drawing up a plan of attack and then sending out his men at arms to carry that out and pass it down the ranks. I get it. 
But at the same time, I think there's something lost when the leader of the army isn't leading the army. So when Nabashima, Wizen no Kami, Tadano died, his attendant, Ezo Kinbei, took his remains and had them consecrated at Mount Kola. And then, confining himself in a hermitage, he carved a statue of his master and another of himself doing reverence before the master. On the first anniversary of Tadano's death, he returned to his home and committed Tsuifuku. We talked about that in the last episode. Later, the statue was taken from Mount Koya and was placed at the Kodenji. Think of defeating your allies, as was laid out at the beginning of this. Think of what that means, winning allies to your side. Think of when you partner with someone. Are you so bound together that your death is their death? They share your death. They want to die themselves because life without you is too much, too painful. Better to die and join them in the afterlife than to remain here alone mourning them. It's romantic. I don't know if it's necessary, but within the context of this culture, I totally understand. That's a whole nother conversation, isn't it? how we treat suicide today in our culture versus how the Japanese treated suicide within the context of the samurai ethos. It's a wholly different animal. And yet, I've seen people, I'm sure you have too, when someone they love dies, someone they can't live without dies, after that, it's not that they themselves are dead, But they're not alive either. They simply are existing. And they they recover at some point. They go back to work. They pay bills. They go out. They interface with other people. But whoever they were before the funeral is not the person they were after the funeral. And they were forever changed. Especially when I see parents who have lost a child. I see this. It's not that they don't carry on and get on with the, the tasks of living, but a piece of themselves is anchored to that moment forever. And there's always an edge to everything they say and do. I see it in their body language. I see it in their eyes when they think that they're enjoying a quiet moment where no one's around them. I see that when they talk about matters of life and death. That the specter of that child, no matter when they died, is always with them. And in a way, I don't think that that child, the ghost of that child, should ever leave them. Because that is me, but not me. And I had to bury him. I had to bury her. But when we bury a spouse or a parent. We're bearing a piece of ourself with them. And once we walk away from the grave, we can never recover that. It's there now. In this side of the resurrection, we don't get it back. So I get that. But, 
the pain that you walk away with from the grave. <clears throat> for a lot of people, for some people, the weight is too much. And it crushes them. It kills them. And yet, do we surround them with allies? Do we surround them with people who can help carry that pain, who can carry the weight for them? Maybe not completely lift it off their shoulders. I don't know if that's possible. But at the very least, lighten the load so that they don't commit suhuku, but rather they live for the person who died. And they enjoy a life for themselves and for that person. So that they can say that their death was not in vain, it wasn't useless, it had no value. But rather, I'll live in such a way that I honor them, that I hold their life in the highest of regards, whether they lived one year or 10 years or 100 years. <clears throat> Excuse me, allergy season. But whatever the case may be, do we overcome our own body in order to defeat our allies so that when it comes time to fight the enemy, we have a contingent 10, 100, 10,000 around us who will follow us into death if necessary in order to fight with us and for us. In our culture, it's difficult to be intimate with others who aren't your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it might be. We have developed this monolithic understanding of intimacy that is usually physical only. And then we, you know, we follow it up with emotional and intellectual intimacy, which is ironic in a sad sense, because really intellectual and emotional intimacy is so much more intimate than physical intimacy. In fact, I would argue that physical intimacy is the least intimate of the three. Once I get to know you on an intellectual level, then I'll choose to open myself up to you on an emotional level. And in my personal opinion, emotional intimacy is the most intimate you can be with someone because, well, here's my, here, here's my fears. Here's what scares me worse than anything in the world that I would never tell anybody because if they ever use this against me, it would destroy me. Here's my insecurities. <clears throat> Here's what I hate about myself. Here's what somebody said to me when I was 11 years old that I never got over. <clears throat> Here's about when I was bullied in high school. Here's that test I failed. Here's me sitting home alone on prom night. Here's my first failed marriage. Here's my PTS from my service. Here's the anger and the frustration I have because people were spitting in my face all day. Here's everything I hide from the world because if I revealed this, they would crush me. But I'm going to give it to you now. I'm going to allow you to be the bearer. I'm going to privilege you with this information, with these emotions. And then finally, when intellectually and emotionally we are as close as two human beings can be because we've let each other in to the dark corners of our own heart. Then we consummate the relationship with physical intimacy. But that's the least of all the physical, or the least of all the intimacies. And yet what is the first thing that we do? 
hey, I like you, you like me, let's have sex. And then we break up. Why? Because it's just sex. You've heard that before. I've heard that before. We don't revere each other. We don't consider our bodies to be sacred things. We treat our bodies like we treat a jar of peanut butter. It's disposable. It's a commodity. We treat other people's bodies that way. Because we're not intellectually honest with each other. We're not emotionally honest with each other. And so we lie to each other. We lie about intimacy. And we flip everything upside down and backwards. And then we wonder why relationships fail so much. And why people are so afraid to get married. Well, it's because you've been taught the wrong things all along. You want to have a good marriage. You want to have a good working relationship with your business partners. You want to have good good teammates. You want to actually enjoy your own company. Fine, overcome your own body. And how do you do that? Through rigorous intellectual and emotional and physical honesty. Rigorous self-honesty. Rigorous moral honesty. And saying, what must I do to defeat myself? If I can do that, if I can overcome myself, my shortcomings, my failings, my fears and insecurities, because remember, in the preface to the Hagakure, the whole reason for this book to exist ultimately is so that we can transcend our fears through a commitment to the four vows of loyalty, devotion, purity, and selflessness, so that I can live sober and strong-minded in the present tense and in this way transcend fear. Because if I can't transcend my own fears, what am I going to project out onto the world? What kind of relationships am I going to cultivate? How am I going to see myself in relation to other people and other things? How am I going to react to events that are out of my control? Well, I haven't transcended fear, so everything is going to be fueled by my fears. What is called winning is defeating one's allies. Defeating one's allies is defeating oneself. And defeating oneself is vigorously overcoming one's own body. I like that. I really do. Because I think it's true. <clears throat> There's something that comes with disciplining one's body. And that breeds a kind of moral toughness, right? Because it breeds an intellectual and an emotional honesty and toughness. Not just physical stamina, but emotional and intellectual stamina. And you tend to then seek out people that are like that because they're kind of like fuel. They help propel you forward. But like I've talked about before, and I'm sure we've all experienced at one time or another, the, the, the further you go, the more you push that, the less people you meet along the way. There's only one David Goggins. There's only one Jocko Willink in any generation. They're characters. They're unique. What makes them them? Is it natural? Sure. Is it nurture? Sure. Is it a combination? of? I think so. They have simply gotten to a point where they said, going back is not an option. Defeat and surrender is not an option. Quitting is not an option. And maybe for each of us, we're there because we found that thing that was worth fighting against and fighting for. A person as well. But maybe you haven't found that yet. Maybe you're searching for it. But all I can say from my own experience is all I had to do was turn around and look at the things that enslaved me. And then I found who my enemy was. For me, it was addiction and abuse. 
I had to overcome those two things by overcoming myself and my, how I interfaced and engaged with those two, those two areas of my life. And that's a, and what I discovered, of course, when I opened the gates is that's a huge army and it's a lifelong, uh, lifelong conflict. But the longer I do it, the easier it is to fight because I diminish my enemy and yet I increase my allies. As I get stronger, my enemies get weaker. As I become more courageous, my enemies become more cowardly and craven. The more I fight, the more my enemies retreat. And I think that's really, for me anyways, what I'm getting from this text today. And I hope that's what you're getting from the text as well, or at least it's moving you in that direction to think that way. If there are things that are holding you back, if there are things that are affecting your relationships negatively, if you find yourself surrounded by people that you can't trust, you can't lean into them, you can't depend on them to show up for you, look at yourself. Look at the things, look at the people that enslave you, that weaken you, that make false promises, that offer to be false saviors, false gods. And then attack Go on the attack. And like I said, at first, yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be troubling. You're going to, you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to surrender, sign a peace treaty. Maybe establish detente, which isn't possible when you're a slave. And then ask yourself, what am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to do to overcome myself in order to escape this enslavement to these people and these things? that use me, exploit me, pervert and twist me into different shapes that I don't even recognize myself anymore? What am I willing to do to defeat myself by vigorously overcoming my own body? Put down the sugar, right? Stop with garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. Stop. Stop. Do a little bit of research. Figure it out. Fill yourself with good things, nutrient-rich things. Put good things into your brain. Read books that teach. Read books that teach you how to learn. Read books that stimulate you. Read books that help you grow as a person that you can put into practice in your life. <clears throat> surround your people. Surround yourself with people you can be emotionally honest with and who will be emotionally honest with you. Surround yourself with good people who will hold you to a certain moral standard. So that you can say, this food is not good. This job is not good. This relationship is not good. These things are not good. These are the people and things that are disempowering me, disabling me, enslaving me. And so step one, put down the donut. Stop eating your emotions. Confront them. Confront the source. Address your shame, your fear, your anger, your guilt. Address it and then overcome it however you need to do that. But understand it's a fight. But I can tell you from my own experience anyways, it gets easier. It never stops, but it does get easier. And that's why I'm here, to tell you that. It gets easier. Just don't quit. Don't quit. That's all I got today. I'm going to keep it relatively short. Yeah, I'm going to keep it short today, even though chapter 7 is a longer chapter. That first, first sentence is just, it's a banger. 
So thank you as always for listening to the podcast. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for supporting the podcast financially. Even if you give a dollar a month to support the podcast, it helps immensely cover the cost of books and other resources that I use for the podcast when I put it together every week. Thank you. Share it with friends. Share it with family. Have the conversation like I say all the time. Use the podcast as a jumping off point. Use it as a jumping off point to read good books. If you like the stuff that I read on this podcast, suggest books to other people. Say, hey, check out the Hagakure. This is some good stuff. Otherwise, I will talk to you Wednesday for a brand new episode. And actually Tuesday, the gym opens and I'll be teaching my first kids class of Muay Thai. That should be an adventure. And then Wednesday and then Thursday, I have another kids class for Muay Thai, two classes. And then Friday, adult classes. So it all begins. It all begins. If I can do it, you can do it. Get after it. All right. We'll see you. Love you. Peace.